0: Picking up now uh, week four of this uh, Fruits from God's Garden. This series is based on this very famous verse in Galatians 5 that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus says you need to see this in your life. You should see this in your life. Other people should see this in your life. This should set you apart. This is how you'll know, he said, that you're my disciples, that people will see this in your life. So how do we get it? Why aren't we seeing it? And, and what does it mean? So that's what we've been talking about. We, we've only gotten through one. This is week four. We've gotten through one whole fruit. That was a fruit of love. It's an important fruit. But we want to try to pick up speed, except for, I'm warning you right now, this is a two-parter. So we can, um, we can do it. Now, this is the deal, for those of you who are kind of new to Spirit Chapel. Sometimes, my sermons go long, you all know that. Sometimes I know they're going long in advance, and so I split them into two parts, but the deal is you have to come back and hear the second part. So don't make me preach a 45, 50-minute sermon. I'm going to split this up into two parts for you. But um, I, I really felt this one net needed that because I want to talk about uh, something that's going on in this and, and why we're not seeing this fruit in our life. Because I mean, that's, I mean, that's my, my opinion. I know a lot of Christians, and if I were to say, oh, you know, they're a Christian, do I really see all these fruits in their life? Do I really see them all in my life? And the answer is, no, for as long as I've known the Lord, I should have a lot more fruit being born in my life. I'll be honest with you, and I don't. What happened? Where is it? What's going on? And so that's kind of a part of what we're looking at, too. What's stealing it from us? As we talked about with love as well. So I'm going to talk about what's going on here. And, uh, of course, we all know that there is an enemy out there. Uh, his name literally means enemy, uh, Satan. And he, he's, he's described a lot of different ways, but two of the main things we're told about him, Jesus tells us he's a liar. He's talking to uh, the Pharisees here. He says, "Your father's the devil. You want to do the desires of your father." He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. He's the opposite of truth. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie, he speaks from his own nature. for he is a liar, and he is a father of lies. You can't be any more clear. Satan is first and foremost a liar. You know, Jesus is telling us that. And Jesus has known him a very, very long time. So Jesus would know all about him. There's a couple verses in the Bible. I'm going to pull one out of 2 Corinthians here. But there's another verse in, in Revelation that uses the same term for him. He says, The serpent deceived Eve, that's Satan, by his cunning. And your minds may be corrupted from the complete and pure devotion to Christ. And I think that's what's going on. That just as Eve got deceived, we're being deceived, and that's why we're not seeing the fruit in our lives. So uh, Satan is a liar, and he's a deceiver. Now, I get caught up in these things, I guess, because of the way I, I think about language. But when I read that, and I've thought about this and prayed about this for actually some time, long before I was preaching a series, what, what in the world is the difference between a lie and a deception? You know, he's a liar and deceiver. What's the difference? There is a difference. And, and some of this I know because you know, we kind of use words interchangeably in our language, but there really is a difference between a lie and a deception. And the reason I want to take some time on this is two things. First, to realize what's happening in our lives. Am I, am I being lied to or am I being deceived? The other thing is I know some of you are working or talking to people you know, maybe that you work with, your neighbors, your family, and, and you get angry with them. I know because I see some of these fights on Facebook. I, I see them uh, and, and, and I can see it going back and forth and like I can tell they're like, why won't you just understand the truth? Well, there's a difference between a person who's simply been lied to and been deceived. And if you are dealing with someone who's been deceived, you have to deal with them differently than someone who's simply been lied to. Uh, so I want to kind of talk about this. Now, there's a lot of different ways the lie can be done, but usually when the devil does it, it's a partial truth and he mixes it with your fear. The best example of this, uh, I don't have the scripture up here, but it's when, when Joseph's brothers sell him in slavery, they take his famous coat of many colors, they tear it, and they put enamel an blood on it, and they bring it back to their dad. I always thought they said, look, your son's been killed, but if you look at what they say in the Bible, it's not that. They say, we found this coat with blood on it. Is it your son's? Right, so there's a, there's a truth there. They found the coat. It's truth, there's blood on because they put it there. But they don't tell their dad anything. They simply say, Is it your sons? And he looks at it and he says, Surely he's been ripped apart by wild animals is dead. So this is actually a fear that was in his heart when he sent him off to find his brothers, which is why I always kind of kept him close, you know, because he was his favorite son. And his fear is realized with this partial truth. And that becomes the lie that he believes for many, many years, okay? So that's a lie. Usually a lie, when the devil does it, usually it's a little bit of truth, just a little bit, to give it that juice, and then he mixes it with your fear. And this is when you'll know the devil's at work because he'll, he'll mix this little tiny partial truth with a huge fear. That's, um, that's a lie. Now, a lie can be easily broken if the person's open to it just simply by having the truth revealed. So I'm going to tell you a little story from my life, uh, when I had an owie, uh, I got hurt. So I've told this story before. I don't have time today to go into all the details. And Victoria says, Amen. Um, she hates me to go into the details. So I'll just give you kind of the real summary of it. Uh, when I was about 15 years old, I got hurt. I got hurt physically, and then because of my family's reaction to it, I got hurt emotionally too. Because I was hurt, and no one in my family, I was actually hurt by a family member physically and no one in my family seemed to care because they seemed to think I deserved it. And so I lay there hurting for several hours until finally somebody (laughs) decided to check on me, and they realized it was bad enough to take me to the hospital. So during this moment, these three hours, I wasn't sitting there praising the Lord and and thinking positive thoughts. I was thinking what you probably would expect a 15-year-old boy in angst to be thinking as he's lying there, and there's absolutely nobody that cares. So um, what happens at this point is the devil starts coming into the situation, and he starts giving you lies. And the lies are kind of like, uh, have you ever seen a person climb up this steep, like, rock face? And you look at them at the bottom, you think they're never going to be able to make it up there. But they'll find a toehold, you know, and they'll push up, and then they find a little place to put their fingers, you know. And these guys, they're nuts, you know, they'll go up there with no net, and no, no line, or you see them up there, they'll powder their hands, and they're going, they're climbing. And they're looking for first the toehold, then the finger hold, then the toehold. And you watch them go up there, and it's almost impossible to believe how high they can get you know, when it just seemed impossible. This is how the devil is with his lies. He gets a little toehold, and you give him that, and he'll push from there, and he'll, he'll get another handhold. And he just keeps working in your life to draw you deeper and deeper into the lie. Usually Satan doesn't stop with one lie. He'll add many, many to it. And that's what happened in my case. So the, f- the first lie uh, was simply very, very easy to get. Well, nobody cares about you at all. You know, that starts on the, 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 the observation. Nobody's come to check on you, right? Then the lie starts, well, nobody cares about you. Obviously, they're not here. And you know, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me. So that lie's bought, that toe holds there. He pushes up from there. I don't think they've ever cared for you, do you? I don't think they care for you at all. I don't think one person in your family has ever really cared for you because this isn't how somebody cares, operates, and okay, that makes sense, and that, that hand's in there now, and then the next one goes up. Well, I don't think that they love you then, do you? This isn't the way someone who loves you would treat you. Clearly, they must not love you at all. And you see, this isn't happening, by the way, in minutes. This takes time. But over time, I'm getting, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Well, well, if they don't love you, you say now he's got his nice hand, he's moving the foot up for the next move, and the next move is this. Um, Maybe no one loves you. You ever thought of that? And see, that makes you think, well, that's impossible. Who would believe that? But when you're a 15-year-old boy, that's not so hard to believe, because I don't know how things are today with 15-year-olds running around, but my day, my friends didn't tell each other we loved us. You know, I love you, man. No, that never happened when we were 15 years old. That would never have happened. They like you, they like hanging around you, but no one was running around, I love you, both. No, no, never happened. So I didn't really have anybody tell me they loved me. Now I just have written off my whole family, well, who does love me? I, I got no one, you know? So that lie becomes one I can believe, too. And see now he's moving up to a very important point and again this takes place over a lot of time you know, it's just an instant but slowly over time um, the next move is well maybe you're just not lovable seems like other people are getting loved in your family and around you but you're not maybe you're just not lovable maybe it's you maybe there's something about you that people just aren't going to love and that's a scary place to be but I'm not the only 15-year-old who's ever had that thought, I can tell you. And so at that point, I'm really kind of on an edge because his next play for this is, maybe God doesn't love you. That's coming, but he never makes it to there because it's at this point that God steps in and pushes him off the ledge. And, and how he did it was, because this is all a lie, right? Everything's built up in a lie. And all God has to do at this point is reveal the truth, and then it'll be, and then the whole lie will crumble Now, you would think, because I'm a preacher and I'm preaching you, that I'm going to say God came in with with angel harps playing and told me he loved me and and it changed everything, but that's not what happened, right? I was already a Christian. I already believed God loved me. You know, devils moved me into a position where he could push that out, but I still did believe God loved me. That wasn't going to help me. Having somebody say, well, God loves you wouldn't have helped me. I knew God loved me, but I wasn't experiencing love anywhere else. Um, so what God did, and I'm going to say something now that some of you are going to go, yeah, that makes sense. Some of you are going to say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I know that going into this, all I can say, this is my life, and this is how I remember it, okay? So just for whatever that's worth. Because what God did next was he gave me a dog. And I, you know, we had a family dogs up. I'd always wanted my own dog, and I finally got it right at this time. And I don't think that was coincidence. Because the thing about a dog is they love you unconditionally. And I know people say, well, you feed them, but I've seen dogs mistreated that still love their masters. It's this weird thing about dogs, they have a way of getting in your heart because they'll love you unconditionally. And this particular dog was a Siberian Husky and um, that meant I needed to exercise it because that thing had to run constantly. And so we used to go for walks, daily walks like five miles a day in Round Hill Park. And for some reason back then we never saw any other dogs, I don't know why. Population was greater then but I never saw any animals back there except for us. We would go every day, rain, snow, didn't matter. Uh, and we got this bond going because I'd walk and think and talk and, you know, trying to work through my life. And this dog was always there. And even when I'd come home, because I worked uh, at Howard Johnson's restaurant when I was through high school and I worked midnight shift. And I'd come home sometimes 6 o'clock in the morning on winter day. And it didn't matter. Whenever I came home, that dog would get up, come over, see me outside, meet me outside in the cold. Didn't matter. To welcome me home. There was something about this, right? And I started to feel loved. It might seem weird. But I started to feel loved. Now, I'm not suggesting that animal, lo- animal love of a dog should replace love of a human. But before I could really move back across the lies, I had to realize that I was lovable, even if it's just a dog. So all of a sudden, this whole thing of you're not lovable just <coughs> got blown away. Well, that can't be true. Well, if that's not true, hey, wait a minute, maybe this isn't true, and maybe that's not true, and maybe that's not true. And it would take a couple of years to get worked all the way back through and get the lie out of my life. But eventually I would, and it started by simply having the truth revealed to me. And I think God waited till the devil was really exposed, because that lies a tough one. You're not lovable. Because as soon as that happened, I started remembering God loved me, right? And I started feeling that again. And so we were able to fall back. So that's how you beat a lie. If you know somebody who's being lied to, you beat it by giving them the truth. That makes sense. But they have to be willing to receive it. Some people aren't. Some people will not receive the truth because they're afraid of what the truth means. They don't want to look at the truth because the truth has certain implications that they can't face right now. And so they'd rather live in the lie, and, they, and that's when people get angry with you because they don't want to hear the truth. And we're actually starting to get now into the second level, which is deception. Because deception is different than a lie. Deception is when the truth gets replaced by an imposter. <coughs> See, that's, that's what that devil really wants to do because he knows a lie is weak. Honestly, a lie is weak. If you know the truth, then, then a lie will quickly be revealed but boy if he can get you deceived where you have displaced the truth with a lie and you believe that lie it's very very hard to move you off of it I don't have you ever talked to someone who's deceived but they'll be saying stuff to you that makes no sense at all but they believe it with their heart the lie they've told themselves becomes the truth they tell you and they believe they're telling you the truth but it's simply a lie they believe and this is what the devil really, really wants to do. And you see this in like, uh, situations like if, if you take, take my example and flip it. Let's say it's a, it was a teenage girl, 15 years old, who thought she was unlovable. And then she meets a boyfriend who loves her, but he's abusive. Right? Uh, and that's not really love, but he tells her it's love. It becomes a substitute for what's really love. And he's abusing her, and then he'll apologize. He'll blame her for why he abused her. Look what you made me do. And all these things that happen in an abusive relationship. And what happens, though, is that that becomes love for her. That's the only love that she really can remember knowing. And if you try to take that away from her, she'll resist because she doesn't want to go back to being un- unloved. And so what's happened is the deception has become her reality, and she'd rather have that than the truth. She's afraid of the truth. The truth is this isn't love. But there's another truth that she has to go back to, that's that there is a real love. And, and it, but we have to get rid of the deception first. I mention all that because this next fruit of the Spirit is joy. And the devil has done a really, really good job of deceiving us about what joy is. And it goes all the way back. It's in our society so deep that in some places it's literally carved into stone. If not, it's in parchments that are put on display and it's considered one of the greatest documents of all time. And America's proud of it. And in it has a very specific phrase that I'm sure everybody who have paid attention in grade school knows. Thomas Jefferson writing says the creator, God, has given men inalienable rights, chief among these, life, liberty, and finish it with me, pursuit of happiness, Right? pursuit of happiness now i know when jefferson was writing that god was sitting in heaven saying i certainly did not because that's a lie god did not give us a right for pursuit of happiness but it's a lie we believe it's become part of our culture and we brought our culture into our christianity and it's just become part of our christianity so in our minds being happy and being joyful become the same thing but it's not in the bible the bible doesn't speak of pursuit of happiness It's pursuit of joy. And they're not two different words for the same thing. They're completely different things. God simply did not create us to pursue happiness. Now, There's a couple reasons I can prove this to you. Uh, For one thing, you need to know that your happiness is absolutely not an indication of your righteousness. Hey, evil people can be happy. You ever seen this video clip and anything? This is a clip of Hitler doing a jig. You know why he's doing a jig? Paris has just fallen. And and so he gets announced that Paris has fallen. So tens of thousands of men, women, and children have been killed. And priceless artifacts have been destroyed by the tanks of of Germany blowing through the Maginot Line and and destroying Paris. And he's dancing a jig. Now, Hitler was an evil person, but he was happy. He's genuinely happy. There's a couple times he breaks into a dance. Hitler does. I don't know if you knew that. There's a couple videos of him dancing. He's a happy guy. He's evil. He's evil but he's happy, which is why happiness certainly cannot be a fruit of the Spirit if an evil person can have it and show it, right? Happiness is no indication at all of your righteousness. Happiness is always based on your circumstances. You can be evil and be happy. If the circumstances hit your life right, it makes you happy. So all I need is happiness. Now we see like in Genesis uh, back when, um, I don't know if you guys remember the story, but Leah is one of two wives, Leah and Rachel, and uh, so they, they, they're always at it, trying to figure out who's the better wife. Well, Leah has a lot more children than Rachel. And so when Leah can no longer bear children, she gives her handmaiden to, to her husband. And he, she has a child, and look what she says. Happy am I. Happy am I. Why? Women will call me happy. <laughs> they're going to see this. They're going to say, oh, look, she has yet. women are going to be saying, look how good she is. She has yet another child. I'm happy. The circumstance makes her happy. Now, when that circumstance dies down, she's going to realize she's the second favorite wife of her husband, and she's not going to be happy anymore because the circumstance is going to die down. But for the moment, she's happy. There are things in her lives that are just going to make us happy. Now, when I say it's a lie that God doesn't want you to pursue happiness. It doesn't mean God doesn't want you to be happy. There seem to be some churches that preach that too. God wants us stoic. He wants us to, you know, these expressions never have a smile on our face. That's not God either. You will be happy in life. Sure, when the circumstances line up right, you'll be happy. God doesn't want to take that away from you. As long as it's a healthy reason why you're happy, that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but we have to understand that it's always based on circumstance. And this is the problem. This problem is that it's based on circumstances and circumstances changes. And no matter how good you are at manipulating circumstance, no matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, you cannot maintain happiness. Hitler had the entire Third Reich at his disposal. (laughs) Believe me, he did not die a happy man. He didn't really live a happy man. He had these moments of happiness. But we see this in in, in our lives too. And we see people trying trying to pursue happiness. And we think it's our right and we even think it's our duty. Uh, you'll see this in the dysfunctional family. and you know, We do counseling. So a dysfunctional family is when you have usually some kind of an addiction. It doesn't have to be an addiction. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. Uh, it could be anger issues. It could be abuse. A lot of things. But what's happened in a dysfunctional family is the normal family cycle has been broken. And the reason it's called dysfunctional is it really can't even function as a family. So what happens is at least one person, and usually just one, becomes something known as the enabler. And the enabler basically steps in and does everything that everybody else is dropping so the family can continue to function, right? That's the enabler's role. And if the neighbor the thinks that they can do their job right, the family will stay happy and everything will be fine. And if ever there's strife in their life, the enabler blames themselves. Oftentimes the family blames them too. Why didn't you stop this? And they're right, I need to fix this. I need to control the circumstances to keep my family from falling. It's a horrible thing to do because it's usually a kid. It's so horrible. It steals their childhood, but it also steals their joy because they don't even know what joy is. They're so worried about trying to control all the circumstances to keep the family happy that they have no idea what else they should be. And they will take that with them into their next, their next family. And they'll continue to try to manipulate everything. Oftentimes people come out of a, an alcoholic family, this, you'll hear this type A personality, right? They're trying to control everything, why? Because they learned that they could control everything, if they could keep daddy from getting drunk, Their lives were good. And if they couldn't, their lives went to hell. And so they try to control everything, but you can't control everything. You can't make the happiness happen. That's why the pursuit of happiness always loses. Um, The other side of it, of course, some people, they're not type A's or they're not enablers. They just, they're just selfish. I'm just going to be happy. I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. I mean, my whole life is going to be in pursuit of happiness. Hey, it's, an, it's guaranteed to me in declaration, declaration of Independence. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend my whole life pursuing happiness. And they do. And you see this. You know, they go throughout parties and drugs or alcohol or just collecting things or making money, bigger houses, whatever. But every one of these people also finds out that happiness isn't working. In fact, the guy who wrote this, Thomas Jefferson, was a very well-known person who believed in something called the bohemian lifestyle. And that's exactly what the bohemian lifestyle is. It is the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson did not die a happy man. He had a lot of really big problems that happened in his life, especially as it came to later. And you can make a list of the people who didn't die happy from Howard Hughes, who died like an animal. In, in a hotel room and no one even knew. The stink was so bad in the room anyway that when his body started decomposing, they didn't know. Uh, so you, know, you have that. He was the richest man in America at the time. Steve Jobs died of cancer. You can't control circumstances. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how powerful you are, you can't do that. The other problem with trying to control circumstances and be happy is happiness never gets achieved the same way twice. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but if you do something that really truly made you happy, and you could somehow reproduce everything again tomorrow and do the same thing, you won't be as happy. Because it's like an echo. The first one's loud, the next one's a little bit softer, which is why people keep amping up circumstances to try to make themselves happy, because it's not working like it did before. Because you'll never be as happy the second time you experience it. If you want to know why kids are so great at being happy, it's because everything's new to them. Uh, We took Emily to... uh, says Disney World when she was 18 months old she didn't understand anything going on but I bought her this gold sparkly balloon with mouse ears you know it was like the biggest greatest thing in her life she would like watch it just floating around she was so genuinely happy to watch this balloon float around we went back the next day I bought her another balloon it was like eh. Why? Well, because she experienced it already. So she needs something new. Because that that's, yeah, it makes you a little happy, but it's not the same thing. So if you're always going to try to get the same thing again, we're going to try to manipulate our circumstances, you get there and you realize, this isn't working for me. I thought it would, but it's not. We see this in the Bible. One of the richest men in the Bible, a guy named Solomon. This was David's son. You would think he would know something about this. But he pursued happiness and wrote a whole book about it. If you want to get depressed... Go read it. It's called Ecclesiastes. It's the most depressing book in the Bible, I think. Um, I love it, but um, not everybody has my, my weird um, Irish flair. So anyway, I denied myself nothing, he says. Nothing that my eyes, if I could see it, I went after it. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart wanted it, I went after it. A lot of people live this way, or they want to, but Solomon could because he was rich. He was really, really rich. My heart took delight in all my labor. This is what I did right? Sometimes we find our joy in our work. I'm going to be happy because I'm going to be really good at work. If I could just have a good job, I'd be happy. If I could, you know, be, be respected at work, I'd be happy. If I could do this at work and, and accomplish this, I'll be happy. He says, I did that too. I took delight in all my labor. This was the reward. Yet, when I surveyed, all my hands had done. What I had worked to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was chasing after the wind. Isn't it amazing? But after he did everything, he says, it it, it didn't work. I was trying to be happy with all the resources of a king. And he couldn't be. Sometimes you want to get it, and the worst thing you can get is your dream. Because you find out the dream isn't what you thought it would be, you know. What do you do when you find the thing you wanted most in life isn't enough to make you happy? What happens then? I'm always chasing this dream, and now I caught it. That's not making me happy either. And this is the challenge with it. Solomon had wisdom and Solomon had riches. But you know what? He never understood the pure joy of a shepherd boy dancing before his Lord. Solomon was richer than his father, David. He, He would expand the kingdom to its highest point. He was rich. People came to see his gardens in his library. They would travel like other kings would do it. He was so well known because he was so wise and he was so wise with his money that he was able to invest it and the kingdom grew. It was amazing what he had, much more than David ever had and yet David had joy that Solomon never knew. David didn't die the same way Solomon did. David wrote songs where he's proclaiming joy, not happiness Joy, and we see this when he first becomes king. There's a there's a scene where he just this is David. This is who he is. Um, it, it, what happened was they go, they're bringing the ark of the covenant. This is just after he becomes king. Uh, now the guy before him is a guy named Saul, and Saul still had family. So usually when Saul dies, as he did, it'd be passed to a part of his family. Uh, but God had already declared David would be king. So he passed over all of Saul's relatives and made David king because of his heart, because his heart could feel that joy. Of the Savior, and he could he could bring he could bring that joy, and so David was worried that God wasn't blessing him uh, because the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. When they tried to bring it there, somebody got killed, and so God he thought God's not blessing this. And so then they put it with his other family and God blessed that family, the whole family. You know, David like parked it with this one trusted advisor to see what God would do. That's how I'd like to be that advisor. Okay, God killed the last person to touch this wrong. Would you hold it for me for a moment? I want to see if this is just them or and so God blessed them, which David took as as, as a sign that God was meaning to bless him. So he embraced it. They said, Well bring it here, then I'll put it in my house. I'll put it in the palace. So he went and he got the Ark of the Covenant and he led the procession to bring this big Ark of the Covenant in, because this is basically God saying, Yes, my my Ark of the Covenant, which is my law, is going with you. In other words, I have declared you are king. So he's very happy about this. So David went and brought up the ark to the city of David with rejoicing, which that the the root of that word is joy. David danced before the Lord with all his might. That's joy. You know, you're just dancing before God. But watch, he was wearing only a linen ephod. Now, that is like a loincloth almost. So here's the king, and this is always wearing. And I'm not sure why. I'm really not sure why. I have a hunch that he was helping the guys with the ark, you know, and at some point took off his coat to help and then like just started dancing before the Lord, didn't bother putting it back on. But I don't know. Maybe he deliberately did this. I'm not sure. But he's dancing before the Lord. And David and all the house of Israel brought the ark with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And And the actual translation says shouts of joy. So they're just excited, the, 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 the law is coming, God's blessing is coming into this house and he's just dancing and dancing and dancing. Here's what joy is, by the way, it's when our spirit senses God's purpose. The spirit of God brushes against your spirit, that's joy. But it's more than just, I know that there is a God, you sense that God wants something and you get, an, you get a glimpse of God's purpose. Because God is good, but God is always doing good things. And we don't always understand that, but joy comes when we realize that. And like sometimes he's actually calling you to that, and sometimes you just get a glimpse of God at work. And when you see God at work, this joy just wells up in your soul. It's soul-driven, not emotions-driven. Happiness is emotions. Joy comes from the soul. So when our, our soul brushes against the soul of God, and we get to sense, just a sense... Not like a vision, just a sense of purpose, we'll feel joy. You've probably felt real joy in your life. Parents, if you've held a baby in your arm and you felt that, it wasn't just happiness. It was deeper than happiness. And you held that baby, there was joy there. Do you know why? Because God commands you to be fruitful and multiply. And God's purpose was to bring that life into this world. And he entrusted you with that life. And for that brief moment, your soul brushed against the soul of God, and you realize, I'm part of God's purpose here, because it was God's purpose for this child to be born. And, and you sense that, and there's a joy that springs up inside of you. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, from joy often springs happiness, but that's the byproduct of joy. It's not the purpose of joy. And sometimes you'll see in other places, some people have had these really, almost, you'll hear people describe religious experiences, seeing art or something. You know, like a Michelangelo or, a, or something. Just like, it just affected you emotionally. You got emotional. Why? Because God is creative. He, we were created in the image of a creative God. It's one of the only things we know from the, from the first chapter of Genesis. We're created in the image of a creative God. When we create to his glory, we are, we are doing the purpose that God put us here for. One of the many purposes. So when your soul touches a cru- the, the, the soul of God and you get a sense of purpose from it, whether it be your purpose or somebody else, you get that, you'll feel a spring of joy. Now, there's other ways you get joy, but that's one of the sure ways of getting joy. David felt that because for the first time, after years of running for his life, he sensed, everything I believe about God and his purpose is real, and God wants me to be king. And I know he wants me to be king because this Ark of Covenants is following me into my house right now. And God told me to do it. And so he's dancing before Lord. He's just so overcome with joy, he can't do anything but dance. His, he's got happy feet. You know, he's just going. He's dancing. He's, he's praising the Lord, and he comes home. Then after his all, he blesses everybody. Everybody loves him. Everybody's all thinking. You know, everybody's so happy to see this moment. And he blesses everybody, and everybody goes home. You know, to say this was so amazing. We've never had a king like this before. So, you know, he's a spiritual leader as well as the, the the civil leader. They've never had that. Saul wasn't that. He started out that way, but he quickly went south. He said, "This is This is incredible. You can't believe." You can't believe what we felt. Because when David was feeling the joy and expressing the joy in worship, everybody's feeling the joy, right? They just had this experience like that. This, This is amazing. They all went home. David went home to his house. You think his wife was happy? No, she was not. When David returned home to bless his household, he's blessed everybody else. Now he's going home to bless his household. Michael, the daughter of Saul came out to meet him. Now let me tell you who she is because you may have forgotten. When David killed Goliath, part of the prize was he got to get married into Saul's household. He was given her as his prize for killing Goliath. So that's Saul's daughter that is his first wife because of the great thing he did for Israel. So here she is watching her husband become the king now and, and really come into his own for the first time with God's blessing. And she says, oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. That's sarcasm, by the way. I think all the men recognize it, but in case the women didn't. That's sarcasm is what she's doing here. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in the full view of the slave girls of his servants like a vulgar commoner. You disgust me, she says. Are you kidding me? She says, you're not acting dignified. My dad would have never done that. You're no king. You're you're not acting like a king. You're acting like a fool. That's what he's telling. him. So he came home to bless his household. This is what he's met with. And David says this. He says, yep, you know what? It was before the Lord that I was celebrating, not anybody else. They were there, but I wasn't celebrating for them. I was celebrating the Lord. That's who I was celebrating to. The Lord, by the way, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his entire house. So let's not forget who the Lord is does he not have reason to be happy with the Lord does he not have reason to feel the joy that God's purpose was like this he's yeah I I know I know what I was doing I was there I was before the Lord I didn't see anybody but God because God gave me his purpose and I am his purpose that's an amazing place to be as an individual and for David that was a huge place to be that's all I ever wanted just to be in, in the middle of God's in God's will here I am he says i will uh, i will celebrate before the lord I, i need you to know this wife i will continue to celebrate before the lord i will become even more undignified than this i don't care if god calls me to celebrate before him i'll do whatever he says throw ashes on my head i'll do that i don't whatever god says i'll do because i just want to glorify him whatever brings him glory i'll do i don't care and and i felt that god was telling me just dance so i danced I was celebrating before the Lord, and I'll do it again. I mean, you need to know that. And I'll be humiliated in my eyes. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. All I care about is I'm bringing God glory. That's all I care about. But those slave girls you talk about, you know what? They're holding me in honor right now because I'm a righteous king leading them instead of just a civil king ruling them. See, he is God's shepherd and God put him at the head of Israel for a purpose he says those slave girls they know that you missed it but they've got it there wasn't a single person there who didn't know what I was doing and why apparently you missed it you shouldn't have been sitting up in a palace looking down on it you should have come down and joined us where the spirit was flowing then maybe you would know maybe then you would know but you can't get that don't you worry about what people think about me I was glorifying the Lord that's what I was doing See, here's the thing. We're not supposed to pursue happiness because that's a losing bet. The devil wants you to pursue happiness because as long as he gets you chasing the wind, you'll never see the fruit of joy in your life. We're always trying to create our own happiness by going after things. Man, once he got you doing that, he could drive you to do anything. It's amazing the things that I look back in my life, regretfully, that I did in the pursuit of happiness. Some of, of the most horrible things that, that are in my memory are me pursuing happiness. Almost wrecked my life. But never, never have I ever felt one moment's regret when I felt the joy of the Lord. They're different. We are to cultivate joy. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, next week when we get into what joy is. But um, Jesus says this Look, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, he covers it up. He doesn't want anybody else to find it. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything else he has, and he goes by that land. He says, he finds a treasure so great, he knows it's greater than anything he has. It's joyful. I can't believe I found this treasure. And he gives up everything else in order to get it. He says, that's what it's like. This is the joy you should have. Where I don't care about this stuff. I don't care about it because I've got the treasure I See, I've got real treasure here, not this stuff here. And um, this is something that Paul says in Romans, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, "Here's, here, here's you know, you're know, you feeling hopeless in life? Here's the secret to it. He'll fill you with joy. And when you understand God's purpose for your life, you'll have hope. Because what you need to do in your life, you can't do. You may have discovered that. tried, don't work it. He said, well, that's okay. Experience God's joy, and you'll have hope overflowing. Because God can accomplish everything he says he's going to do. So it does, it, the burden comes off you. Now you're just part of God's purpose. And that's, that's what you can be. Living for happiness instead of joy is like building a fire with paper instead of wood. It's not going to last. And we know it can't last. When you were a kid, maybe you did that. Have you ever been to like, I don't know campfire or something, because I was, and we had a campfire going, and you keep throwing paper in it, and you wonder why nothing's (laughs) catching. You know, but you get that wood going, and you keep building that fire, that fire lasts forever, but you you can throw a paper in it. It's not even going to get you warm. Stuff burns up so fast. You can't cook with it. You can't do it. This is what the difference is between happiness and joy. There's nothing wrong with happiness. My wife gets happy at every meal. Every meal is a happy meal for her, you know. She can come in, sit down to a meal, miserable, unhappy, crying, needing a meal, and, 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 and she sees it, and she gets it, and she just gets happy. Like, I've never seen anybody. I've, I live vicariously through her. I can't experience that through food, but she can. And it's great, but it won't last, because you know, that meal's going to end eventually, and she has to go back to her life. So you can't just go running from meal to meal to meal, hoping to make it happy. You've, you've got to have something beyond that. You need something beyond that. Now, um, in Nehemiah, you guys remember, we spent forever in Nehemiah, he says something very interesting and we're going to come back to this verse next week because this is really important because I said that part of what we experience joy is when our soul brushes. That's almost accidental, it sounds like. Uh, but he actually commands us to joy and we can actually seek out and get joy because that's achievable for us. In fact, it's, we're supposed to have it. That's why it's supposed to be a fruit in our life. Nehemiah says this, and we'll come back to this verse. He said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Send some of those who have nothing, send some to those who have nothing prepared. I'll, I'll come back to this verse. This day is a holy day to our Lord. Do not grieve. Don't be, don't be sorrowful. Don't cry. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, joy is more than just feeling good, it actually gives you strength. This is why joy is so important. And when we trade joy for happiness, we get something that burns up like paper. But when we get on to joy, we'll understand that it brings strength to our lives to accomplish much more. And you know, again, as a byproduct, you do become happy. But that has, that has nothing to do with joy. Joy is just, it's the, through joy we find this strength. So happiness is a natural reaction to good things happening. There's nothing wrong with it. Good things happen to you, be happy. Go ahead, it's all right. But trying to reproduce it through circumstance is wasting your time. Believe me, when I say better people than you, more creative people than you, richer people than you, and more powerful people than you have tried it and failed. No one can succeed that way. That's why pursuit of happiness is a lie. Joy is a spiritual reaction to God's goodness. See, the difference, though, with that is that God is always good, which means joy is always available, even when your circumstance is bad. And I don't know about you, but I look at my circumstances and I'm glad to know that I can have joy even in bad circumstances because happiness only comes with good circumstances. We need to seek out joy. Would you all please pray with me?